Let's go. Um, okay. So welcome back, Larry. We welcome back, Nat. Gee, with Scots and Scottish people and and uh, Detroit people, what a mix! Right, I'm going to mute everybody. Yecheskel, um, this is the Shir Leulunishmalsen Ephraim Shmuel Ben Avram Ariyah Cohen and Chai Tova Bas Eliezer Mendel Cohen on the book of Yecheskel, in chapter seven and verse three. Um, it's very appropriate because, of course, it's the three weeks, and Yecheskel is continuing his description of uh, forthcoming attractions in Yerushalayim, um, the destruction of Yerushalayim. And in the previous chapter, it was all about about Zorah. In this chapter, certainly the first part of the chapter, he's concentrating on one particular word, which we're going to deal with later, which is the word kates. Kates meaning the end. Um, End of what uh, is what's got to be decided but as we'll see in the first six verses of this chapter, he mentions the word Kate six times. Um, and that, as we're going to see, is a parallel uh, to something that Doniel mentions in the last chapter of his book. Uh, he also mentions the word Kate's uh, or derivations of the word Kate's, the end, six times. Um, and as we know, or as we should know, Yechezkel and Daniel are, were contemporaries. So we'll see how that fits in a bit later. But uh, at the moment, uh, Yechezkel is continuing his description of what he defines as the kates, the end. So in verse 3, chapter 7, verse 3, The end is upon you, God says. And I will send my anger, wrath or anger or fury upon you. And I will judge you according to the way you've behaved. And I will repay you back, uh, measure for measure, so to speak, for all the abominable things, abominations, abominable things that you did. Now, the first thing to say about this posik is there's always a feeling, and uh, I think it's a feeling amongst human beings in general, um, but certainly amongst the Jewish people, um, uh, in terms of the prophets, that when successive prophets of Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, and Yehuda, the southern kingdom, uh, predicted the end of the kingdoms for hundreds of years, um, and that since their warnings were not heeded by the people, and the prophesied promised destruction still hadn't come, that uh, they believed, or they talked themselves into believing that either God was bluffing, or at the very least, they still had plenty of time uh, to head off the destruction that was foretold in, in, uh, in, by the prophets. In this verse, Yechezkel tells the Jews that, uh, unfortunately, that terrible moment is upon them uh, now. Like, that time has arrived. What's interesting about human nature is that uh, there's a huge difference between the ability of a human being to tolerate um, potential trouble uh, or potential suffering if it's a long way off or if it's going to be take place today. Uh, the example I, I, I like to give, which is, I think is a great analogy, is if somebody mentions, if it comes across on, you know, on WhatsApp or it comes across on, as a government announcement, that there's a 1%, a half a percent chance that the water in Renana has been poisoned with cyanide. 
one half a percent chance. So you can be damn sure that no one in Renan is going to drink the water out of the tap. Yeah, but it's only a half a percent chance. Yeah, well, uh, no one's going to take that chance. And yet, um, doctors have been telling us for years that sitting out in the sun is very dangerous for, you know, you can get skin cancer. And yet, uh, just go to the beach today, the 1st of August, uh, 2022, go to Hertzlia, and you'll see thousands of people sitting out in the sun, many of them with no sunscreen, just sitting out in the sun. You say to them, well, you know, there's been a government warning, World Health Organization, every medical uh, opinion points to the fact that if you sit in the sun, you're putting yourself in danger of getting skin cancer. And the answer generally is, yeah, but I won't get it today. Uh, The difference between that and the water is if I drink the water, even though there's only a half percent chance of getting poisoned, I'll get poisoned today and die today. But when it comes to uh, sitting in the sun, you know, I'm not going to die today, am I? So you can talk yourself into believing it's such a long way off. It's not worth worrying about. And that's that was the pretty much the attitude of the Jewish people. They listened to all these prophets, doom and gloom, but it never came. So they either came to the conclusion that God was bluffing or that, uh, OK, so it might happen one day, but it isn't going to happen today. Um but now, of course, comes the moment when the diagnosis comes and you go to the doctor and God forbid that he tells you you've got melanoma. And uh, that's 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 this day. That's Atar Haketz Uh That day that's been uh, so far off in your own thoughts has finally arrived. And um, so that in this verse, Yechezkel tells the Jews, unfortunately, that terrible moment is upon them. Um, Remember, this is a a time when the Babylonians had already conquered Judah and where many Jews, including Yechezkel, were already in exile. Um, And what Yechezkel is saying now is the destruction of Yerushalayim and the base of Migdash is now only very few years away, five or six years away. And um, it's a frightening reality. And as Abarbanel says, uh, the, the prophet Yechezkel here is making sure that his audience understands that the Kates, the word Kates, end, the end of Yushalayim, the end of the base of Migdosh, the end of the temple, was not going to be a long time into the future now. It's, uh, you know, the diagnosis has been confirmed, uh, melanoma is confirmed, and, you know, eventually there's going to have to be an operation to cut out the tumor or someone's going to die. Uh, but it, whatever it is, it's going to happen very, 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 very soon. So says the Abraham. That's why the Novi says the first word of the Posak is Ato. Ato means now. Yechezka reiterates now. It's now. That day that you said might never come, or if it's going to come, it's going to go. It's too far in the future to worry about. It's here. God's lost his patience. The end of the, uh, this is the end of the game. And uh, our rabbis, the Chazal, tell us that um, regarding the end that the Yechezkel is talking about is predicted in Devorim. It's predicted in Devorim, which is this week's parasha, um, chapter 4, verse 25. Absolutely appropriate for the week. Um, this is uh, um, 
this week's parasha. It's a parasha leading up to Tishabav. Kisoli bonim uvrei bonim. When you produce children and grandchildren. And you will be long established in the land. And you become corrupt and make idols. And you do evil in the eyes of God to provoke him to anger. So the, the Babanel brings the Gemara from Sanhedrin here, and he says, the Possuk says uh, that the Kates will come, Venoshantem, Venoshantem, when you are well established, long established in the land. And the Gemara says it's in Sanhedrin and Daflam Ches, Ahmed Aleph, that the Gematria of the Venoshantem, you can test it out, the uh, Vov is six, Nun is 50, it's 56, another Vov is 62, th- the Shin is 300. That's 362, and Nun is 50, uh, 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 412, a, a tap, is, tap, tap is 400, uh, 812, and a Mem is 40, 852. So that's the gematria of the no You'll be long established in the land. It's got gematria of 852. It's, and the Gemara says, and the Jewish people were exiled in the year 850th year after entering the land of Israel in the year 423 BCE. Uh, they entered the land of Israel in the year 1273 BCE, 850 years later, they were exiled from the land. And uh, says the Gemara, they, they should really have stayed, have been allowed to be in the land 852, based on that word in the Torah, Benoshante, you'll be long established, uh, indicating 852 years. God, so to speak, in his mercy, cut off the last two years of um, their established uh, kingdom in the land of Israel. We'll see why it was a, a act of charity by God in, in a second. And uh, says the Gemara, since they were exiled two years early, as the Gemara says, as an act of charity, an act of kindness from God, not all the curses enumerated in the next verse in Devorim were fulfilled. And um, the very next verse says, God says, I call as witnesses in Devorim. I call as witnesses against you today, the heaven and the earth. You will be speedily and utterly removed and perish from the land. Into the land to which you cross the Jordan to conquer. You will be utterly destroyed, which is not good. Utter, utter destruction is not good. And the, God, the Gemara says that God bringing forward the exile by two years was an act of charity that revoked the warning or the curse of He shall made Tashmidun, you'll be totally annihilated uh, into a curse that... Uh, didn't reach that far. They were never totally annihilated. They were uh, suffered tremendous losses. A third of the Jewish population were destroyed. And uh, as we've discovered in the previous chapters, there was terrible plague. There was terrible famine. There was, there was just unimaginable, unimaginable suffering going on in Yehuda and Yerushalayim. But that, that curse 
he shall made uh, Tashmidun was never fulfilled. They were never fully annihilated. Um, and of course, we're here to prove it. The Jewish people are still here. And um, this act of charity that God, so to speak, exiled them two years early so that uh, that, that curse uh, wouldn't be enforced um, um, is um, mentioned by Daniel. Um, Daniel is one of the greatest of the original uh, exilees, if that's a word, one of the, those that were exiled originally um, to Babylonia uh, at the time of Yechezkel as well, their contemporaries. And he noted this charitable act of God in chapter nine, in the ninth chapter of Daniel, where he says, God hastened the evil, the exile, and he brought it upon us early, because God is uh, righteous and charitable, in whatever he does, even though we didn't listen to what he had to say. And uh, so Doniel also was, if you look at the book of Doniel, it's all about uh, there's loads of references to calculations, dates, years, months, weeks, etc. He was re- obsessed with uh, counting the days, the, the hours, the weeks, the months, the years, the, the, the uh, millennia. And he recognized that um, the Jewish people really were due to be, should have been destroyed based on this curse. Uh, but God, so to speak, was charitable. He exiled them early so that he wouldn't have to enforce the curse. Now, what's important, I just want to make a, a footnote here about what a curse is and what a curse isn't. Uh, people get the impression that a curse is something that's definitely going to happen. And that's not true. A punishment is something that's going to happen. There is a huge difference between a punishment and a curse. And uh, the proof of the pudding is from the first story we have in the Torah. And... Uh, if we look at um, the story in the Torah, that we, we see that Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava were cursed, right? So Chava was cursed because she ate from the tree, right? So she was cursed. In childbirth, she's going to suffer pain. That's one of the things that she was cursed with. And the man was cursed with, you know, uh, you're going you're to have to work for a living. You're going to go out in the fields and the thorns and the thistles. And you're going to have to, instead of being in the Garden of Eden, where everything's for niche, where everything's for free, so you're going to have to go out into the world and uh, struggle and make a living. Those were curses. Now, if those were punishments set in stone, then we'd be in a position where, you know, if a Jewish woman, you know, or a woman goes to hospital, she's pregnant, she's in labor, and she said, you know, I'm in terrible play, in pain, can you give me a epidural? So if the doctor's from enough, he'd say, hey, no, no, dear, I'm afraid not. The Torah says you've got to suffer. You've got to suffer in childbirth. Now, we don't do that, right? We don't do that because the, the warning, the curse that was given to the woman was not a punishment set in stone. It was a curse. The definition of a curse is something to be avoided at all costs. That is the Jewish definition of a curse. And similarly with the man, the man was told, you know, you're going to have to go and work in the fields with the thorns and the thistles. So, uh, you know, you meet a man in uh, New York on West 47th Street uh, in the diamond district, and he's making 50 million a year trading diamonds. And you say to him, he's a chosid. You say to him, listen, what are you doing, mate? You're in the wrong business. The Torah says you shouldn't be uh, living the good life. 
you know, making 50 million a year, you should swap that suit for um, overalls and get out into the fields and start plucking out the thorns and the thistles. And um, by the sweat of your brow, should you make bread? Um, We don't do that either. And that's because there's a huge difference between a curse and a punishment. A punishment is something that is going to, like the snake. The snake was punished, right? The snake had his legs chopped off. God didn't give him a curse. He just chopped off his legs. That's that's a punishment um, because he was maces, whatever that means. He he, he seduced the the sin. He was the one that seduced the sin. But a curse is something completely different. The definition of a curse in Judaism is something to be avoided at all costs. And there's always ways to avoid avoid it. There's always ways to avoid a curse. Generally speaking, it's through teshuva or making good free will decisions. Um, The way to invoke a curse is making bad free will decisions. And after having made a bad free will decision, not doing teshuva afterwards, that can incur a curse. But certainly um, there's no connection in Judaism between a punishment and a curse are two completely different issues. So this is uh, the the message that Yechezkel is giving here. One of the messages Yechezkel is giving here is time is up. And, uh, but, uh, although time is up, you're going to be leaving early, uh, rather than later. Uh, and that's as a result of God's chesed. God's chesed is that uh, you won't have to go through the curse that was in the Torah, uh, as all the curses in the Torah can be avoided. Um, if you play your cards right, if you behave in the correct manner. Um, the next thing, um, uh, Yechezkel says in this pasuk here is Ishvotayich Kidrochayich that uh, when evil befalls the Jew, the Jews of Yehuda and the Jews of Yushalayim, as a as a result of God's uh, rage, as a result of God's fury, he says Ushvotayich Kidrochayich, you'll be judged and punished according to your ways. And the Malbim says says something very interesting here. Into what he says, he says Kidrochayich. What does it mean, kidrochoich, according to your ways? He said, Hadrochim heim hamidus v'darchei ha-nefesh heim shorish l'malalim v'apa'ulos. The word kidrochoich, your ways, according to your ways, the ways of a person are his virtues and his vices and the way his mind operates, which sometimes uh, form the root of his deeds and his actions. Sometimes people have got different thoughts in their heads uh, they've got wills, uh, just like God has. Uh, they've got forces within themselves telling them to go one way or go the other way. Make this decision, uh, decision A or not A or B. And one has to make sure you understand. There's a huge difference between a person's drochim, his ways, his nature, and a person's malolim, a person's actions. He says, for example, sometimes a person will do a bad action, do something bad, because of the power his individualized human nature demands. Um, For example, people are born uh, with propensities uh, to anger, to be arrogant, or to be lusty, 
and uh, the way they're born, the, the human nature they're born with, the propensities they're born with, uh, very often they just can't control themselves. So you see people who are very, in, in all other respects, uh, you know, 99% of the time, they, uh, you know, just regular Joes off the street, but something can push that button and they can just fly off the handle and see three red lights and uh, lose the plot. Similarly, there are certain people who can control themselves most of the time, but if they see a beautiful woman or a very handsome man, you know, their human nature, they can't control themselves. Um, and people feel that sometimes feel the need to, you know, if they don't think they're getting uh, sufficient um, recognition, if they feel the need to seek it out and, uh, you know, they want a claim. And that's just the nature of your individuals. People are like that. Under those circumstances, the whole sinful act is not attributable to him. It's not totally attributable to you. If you do, if you do a bad action based on your own personalized human nature, um, God, God takes that into account. He doesn't say, oh, you know, this guy lost his temper and he was very rude, or this guy, you know, couldn't resist this woman, or this guy, you know, uh, is a Balgaiva, is arrogant and he's boastful. He'll take into account the nature that you're born with, the nature that he gave you, because the nature of his creation uh, compelled him to a certain extent to act that way. So God will take that into consideration. But here, when God says, but after I have judged you according to your ways, then I will put all your abominations back upon you. The warning is different. The, uh, the sins of the Jewish people can't be put down to human nature. The way they'd behave for at least 50% of the 850 years they've lived in the land of Israel can't be put down to human nature. This is not, this is not Ruach HaTeva. This is not human nature, what they were doing. Ratmi Rotson because the the sins committed by the Jewish people were done of their own free will and of the obstinacy of their relationship against God. They didn't want to do what God did, said. Not that they couldn't. They didn't have a, a, a tremendous urge to become pagan or anything, even though it was a very attractive thing. They could have avoided it. The their modus operandi was not based around their own human nature, but based about the fact they didn't want anything to do with God. And that's why it says, as we'll see in the next verse, that's why it says in the next verse that everything you're being punished for is the result of actions you took of your own free will. Um, you're only going to be punished for the uh, sins that you, that you did that were, that can be put down to bad free will decisions as opposed to the human nature and the personal compulsions that you had. But And as a result of that, and therefore, says, he, says the uh, Malbim, what goes around comes around. All your abominable behavior will rebound on you people because you've sinned maliciously. And uh, as he writes, 
Chatos Bezodon Ubeshat Nefesh. An amazing, uh, beautiful Hebrew. It's he, the way to translate it. Uh, my, in my opinion, is premeditated disgust. You had a premeditated disgust with you with God. You you, you were disgusted with him. You, 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 the idea of keeping the Torah disgusted you. You wanted to go your own way. So God says, "Okay, whatever you did, I'll do to you." And um, that's that's the message of the apostle. And it's a very important point uh, in relation to uh, not specifically the nine days or the three weeks. But certainly the period after that, that uh, it's of comfort to know, uh, really of comfort to know, um, that when it comes to the period of Shuvah, which starts in Elul, which is, you know, not so far away now, right? Elul comes around very quick. Uh, you think the summer's just begun, and then before you know it, it's Shiva Sabatamas, it's Tisha B'Av, and then five minutes later, it's Elul, right? And you've got to do Shuvah. And the important point to here, which is, again, uh, a, a great mercy of God is the fact that um, he he has dished out the nature, your human nature, uh, your weaknesses and your predispositions and your propensities uh, to act in certain ways. Sometimes you can control it. Sometimes you can't. And when it comes to sins, you did in that, in that nature. God's very understanding about it. It's uh, it's a various that you do bekas and not bekas lahachis. It's a various that you do. You know you're doing something wrong and you can avoid it, but you just don't want to. Those are the sins you've really got to do Teshuvah for because those are the sins that come back, as uh, uh, Yecheskel said here, they come back around. What goes around comes around and comes back and hits you on the head. So that's one, you know, um, one of the things that we should take into account when uh, you're doing Teshuvah. Uh, and here comes, uh, so that's verse three. And now comes... Uh, really one of the most important psukim in the whole of Tanakh. Um, and it's got, it, it'll, it'll take a long, quite a bit, a bit of time to explain exactly what's going on here. Um, God says, chapter 7, verse 4, very famous posuk, I will not, my eye will not spare you. I'm going to try, I'm just translating the words as it's written in the, the various translations. And then I'm going to explain what the words mean. Lo sochos eini olayich. I will, my eye will not spare you. Velo uh, echmol, and I will not have any pity. Kidrochayich olayich, because I will place, I'll return your sins, your ways upon you. Kidrochayich olayich etei, besolvasayich, besolchich tiyeno, and your abominations will return come full circle and be in your midst and you will know that I am God. So where do you start with the posuk like this? So the first thing to understand is there's two words in this posuk here that need really uh, deeply, uh, need to be deeply understood. The word, the, the first line of the verse is God's not got, not got going to have any chus and below echmo. And God's going to have no chemla. Now, you'll notice there's a word missing from this verse, which normally goes with chus and normally goes with chemla, and that is rachamim. The word rachamim is missing from this possible. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain to you these three words. These three words are often confused. Rachamim, we translate as mercy. Chus, we translate as mercy. And chemla, we translate as mercy. 
and the reality is they've got nothing to do with each other. They're three um, separate issues, they're three separate concepts, and um, I'm going to explain to you exactly what they are um, and why the word Rachamim is missing from this verse. Um, um, and the reason I'm going to do this is because translators, uh, art scroll are no exception in this case. Has anyone got an art scroll in front of them? Has anyone got an art scroll? Can you just translate? How do art scroll translate this verse? The first line of this verse. Shirley, you're, you, you're on, uh, you, you're muted. My eye. Okay, my eye will not spare you. And I will not have compassion. I've, uh, my eye will not spare you and I will not have compassion. Okay, so there you have art scroll again, uh, as well as everybody else. Uh, really don't want to really get involved with what these words mean. Uh, and the reason I'm going to do it is because generally translators are careless when translating uh, synonyms. Um, and as a result of that, you can lose the message of the prophet. Because uh, if if all Yecheskel meant to say is not, I'm not going to spare you and, uh, you know, I'm not going to have any sympathy or whatever, then he'd, he'd just, he'd, you know, it'd just be a simple, a simple message. But this is not a simple message. Uh, and we don't want to lose the message of the prophet. And we don't want to lose the message of God by lumping together different words that appear to imply the same thing. Because you just read it below Sochos and below Echmol. I won't have mercy and I won't have mercy. I won't spare you. I won't spare you. I won't have empathy. I won't have empathy. I won't have sympathy. I won't have sympathy. And when it comes to expressions of mercy and compassion, sympathy, pity, empathy, it's very important to understand the subtle differences between the concepts as they appear in biblical Hebrew, because they're very important. And as I said, there's one word here that's absolutely absent without leave. And that's the word is rachamim. God's, why doesn't it say God's not going to have any rachamim? Right? We say it in davening every day. Rachamim. And uh, it's a word that we use all the time, right? When we, uh, you know, have a bit of rachmanus, you know? Show rachamim, mercy. But it's not, it's missing from this verse. So I'm going to define these words first, and uh, then we'll get, try to understand what exactly what Yechezkel is telling these people. Um, as the Malbin points out in many places in Tanakh, there are no exact synonyms in biblical Hebrew. No. Each word has its own meaning. So, rachamim, which doesn't appear in this verse, rachamim is a concept relating to the relationship between one person and another, or between God and a human being. Uh, God is called ab harachamim, the father of mercy. Rachamim means that you feel bad for someone, and you don't want to see them suffer or go through tough times, even if they deserve it. So you feel a need to help them. And as Jews, as human beings, we're encouraged to have rachamim on every human being and help them, because that is a godly trait that we're encouraged to emulate. God is the Av Harachamim, the father of mercy. He sees, you know, billions of people uh, struggling, suffering, in pain, emotionally, physically, mentally, and he has rachamim, and he does something about it. And even though they, under certain circumstances, maybe God feels they don't really deserve it. And uh, we're encouraged to do the same. When we see a drug addict, 
you might think to yourself, you know, sitting lying in the street in his own, you know, his own urine, in his own vomit, it's very easy to walk past him and say he's got what he deserves. It's a lot more difficult to take the time and have a bit of rachmim, sit down and talk to him, maybe give him, give him some foot, whatever, just to do something, to have some rachmim. That's a very godly trait. And you'll see why it's missing from this, this verse. Well, eventually you'll see. That is the idea of rachmim. It generally exists, and certainly in the physical realm, between man and man, or not allowed to say man and man, because um, human being and human being, right? That's politically correct. Um, anyway, so that is that is Rachman. We'll come back to Rachman shortly or later on, um, and we'll see why it's not mentioned in the verse at all. <clears throat> Chus or Chusa um, is something completely different. Chus, which we say in Dabney again three times a day, uh, we ask for two things. We, got, we ask for Rachamim from God, for mercy from God, but we also ask for Chus. So what is Chus? So Chus is when you care about something or someone because it or they are inherently valuable and you're concerned that this valuable person or this valuable object shouldn't go to waste. And the benefit that they give, either the person or the object, um, would be potentially be lost. Um, you go to the Louvre and you see uh, Da Vinci's uh, Mona Lisa in the Louvre. It's natural that you wouldn't like to see it destroyed. You wouldn't like to see someone go up to it and set it on fire. Because the, even though it's got no intrinsic value to you, you don't own it. Uh, the only benefit you get is by looking at it and enjoying it. Nevertheless, it does have extrinsic value, that it is inherently irreplaceable and as, as an object of valuable art. That is chus. Chus is you have, um, uh, you, you can't bear to see something destroyed or something damaged or something suffering or someone suffering because they have inherent value. They, they provide added value. And if they suffer, or they're wiped out, or it is wiped out, it is destroyed, um, the, the potential value, the potential, uh, potential added value of that person or that item will be lost. Similarly, when a great doctor, a great surgeon is incapacitated and can no longer perform surgery that will save lives, save lives, it's natural to have chus on the basis that this person's skills were valuable and are, are now being lost to humanity. Chazal say, Rachmona shel Yisrael. And uh, the Gemara, uh, again, the Gemara understands the difference between all these terms and it chooses its language very carefully. And the, the Chazal say, shel Yisrael. God is concerned, has chus, has pity that Jewish money shouldn't be wasted, which is why under certain circumstances, Various rules can be made more lenient to avoid a Jew having to suffer a severe financial blow. Uh, For example, we know that there's a halacha, a well-known halacha, that if a goy deliberately touches Jewish wine, or if a goy touches uh, Jewish wine, so the wine becomes uh, prohibited. You can't drink that wine. And according to most authorities, you can't benefit from it either, especially if the person, the non-Jew that touched it is a pagan. Um, however, um, the Gemara says, the Gemara in Avodah Zorah tells us 
that it, it, it was the, uh, it's actually a toysmus on the Gemara in the Vodazara, um, that it was the nature that the, a lot of Jews uh, were involved in the wine business in France. Uh, Rashi's family, for example, Rashi, Rashi's uh, uh, grandchildren uh, were involved in the wine business. And um, uh, and uh, it was a big part of the Ashkenazi community's um, uh, business activities. And you had uh, Catholics, uh, anti-Semitic Catholics that would deliberately come and put their hands in the big vats of wine and deliberately make, make the vats of wine uh, trafe, not trafe, but uh, not kosher. Um, and you have a situation where you've got a, a, a Jewish wine merchant or G- Jewish wine vintner in a, a French town that's all Jewish, and he makes a living providing the wine for the whole village. And a guy comes along and puts his hand in, he deliberately puts his hand in the, the vat of wine, which carries the, the whole year's vintage, and uh, then no one can drink the wine. So on that basis, there's a, a psak, it's the psak of the Orzorua, um, it's brought down in Toysus, um, um that the psak of the Orzorua is, if a goy deliberately touches Jewish wine in order that the Jew shouldn't be able to drink or sell it, and uh, he does it to cause the Jew financial loss, the wine is fully kosher. And at that point, the Gemara says the reason is, shall Yisrael. God has pity, chus. When it comes to value, God has chus. It's, it, chus is an expression of value. That uh, you're concerned about something because it's got value. Either a person or an object or a career or whatever it is. That is chus. So what God is saying in this verse, below sochas eini, that what God is saying is that the value of the Jewish people is their multi-stage responsibility and value. The Jewish people are the nation that are supposed to be in the example to the whole of mankind of how human beings behave. Behave. They are the 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 are supposed to be the epitome of spiritual and moral excellence. They're the Oralagoyim. They're the light unto the nations. That is their value. If they're not performing that task, their value suffers accordingly. You would have chus, pity, regret on an original Leonardo that gets burnt up, but not on a fake that suffers the same fate. God says here, below sochos eini. From my perspective, God says, the value of the Jewish people has decreased so much that I can't feel any chus. I can't feel any pity, any regret about the tragic circumstances they brought upon themselves. They've devalued themselves. The value that they got is in how they behave and the example they set to the rest of the world. They are now fakes. Because they're not doing what they purport to, what they are supposed to be doing. As a result of that, their value goes down. You got uh, a stock on the stock market and it's riding high. And then, you know, the uh, management performs very badly and uh, they have, uh, they, they have bad public relations and they do things that are inappropriate. And you'll soon find that the stock value on the NASDAQ will go down appreciably to almost zero. And that's the Jewish people. The stock value of the Jewish people has gone down to almost zero. 
And that's why God says, the, 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 there's, there's no more value in them. Their value, their, their value to me is in the way they behave and demonstrate to be the oral agoyim. They're not doing that, then there's, they're, they're of no value. And if that's the case, los sochos, they're of no value to me. That is sochos. Then he says, the Novi and God, they talk about chenlo. Now, chenlo is a little bit more complicated. Chenlo means you care about something or someone, not because it's got benefit or value. That's chus. Not on the basis of one's person, of one person's feelings of pity or empathy to another human being, uh, acting in a godlike fashion. That would be rachamin. Chemla is something completely different. Chemla is really saying the situation that this person finds himself in bothers me, and it bothers me intellectually. On the basis of my intellect and the fact that I have studied morality and ethics within the context of a Jewish environment, the situation that this person finds themselves in bothers me intellectually. Chemla unlike chus, will apply to something for which one has no use, no utility, no value. Just that one decides intellectually that it shouldn't be destroyed and its survival would be better. Survival would be better than its destruction. It's an intellectual argument. Now, that's pretty nebulous, uh, what I've just explained to you, but I'm going to give you two examples that more clearly define what chemlor is and what it means here, what God is saying here. So in Shmuel Aleph, uh, chapter watch, uh, Shmuel Aleph, chapter 15, we have uh, a situation where Shmuel uh, has told King, Shaul, King Saul that he has to wipe out the Amalekites. They're going to war with the Amalekites. Now we know from the Torah, Zohar, Eskol Asher, Amalek, Baderach, Betzitz, Mitzrayim, and it finishes off. It's the only piece of the, the Torah that one is required to listen to on Parashat Zohar. It's a biblical, all laning throughout the year. All laning throughout the year is rabbinic in nature. It's a rabbinic responsibility. Apart from Parashat Zohar, which is the week, the Shabbos before Purim, we read Parashat Zohar, which tells us, Timcha Ezecha Amalek Mitachas HaShemayim Lo Tishkach, there's a mitzvah, a biblical um, um, uh, responsibility on the Jewish people to wipe out Amalek. Now, uh, what's interesting uh, is that um, um, just uh, on a tangential issue, last week we had Chazak, um, and everyone stands up for, you know, the last couple of verses before the end of, it was the end of Bamidbar, right? Parashas Masseh. In, the, in America, it was Parashas Matos Masseh. Um, and uh, when we finished each of the five books of Moses, so everyone stands up and they all shout, Chazak, Chazak, Benis Chazak. Now, really, you shouldn't stand up because uh, when I stand, you shouldn't stand up for any part of the Torah because it's indicated it's indicate if, you, if you normally sit. Because it's try, you, you're intimating that this, this piece of the Torah, this verse or these couple of verses are more important than any of the others. And the reality is that no verse in the Torah is more important than any of the others. So if you stand up for laning, you should remain standing. If you sit down for laning, you should remain sitting. Because um, people can get the wrong impression 
Oh, this perverse in the Torah. Is, everyone stands up. Well, you shouldn't. Uh, the Ten Commandments, people stand up. Well, really, you shouldn't. Anyway, that's just a side issue. Uh, the Minag is most people do. In any event, getting back to this idea of Chemlo. So, so in, in, at the beginning of the reign of King Shoal, he's commanded to wipe out, he's going to war with Amalek, and as Shmuel reiterates to him, the biblical um, requirement to wipe out Amalek. This is Shmuel Aleph, chapter 15, verse 3. You, Shoal, will wipe out the Amalekites, utterly destroy them, everything that they've got, and below and you will will have no chemla on them. Um may ish and isha, and you'll kill all of them, men and women, may olel va'adione, infants and uh, nursing children, mishor va'adset, the domesticated animals, migomol va'adchamar. And the non-domesticated working animals kill everything, destroy everything. Now here, Shul is not commanded here not to feel bad about having to kill, uh, kill a mole. He's not commanded not to have rachamim, right? Not to feel sorry about what he's doing, and uh, maybe it's a, a non-godlike, a, a, an extraordinarily non-godlike act. He's not commanded not to have rachamim. He's not commanded not to feel that it's a shame that all these people have to be destroyed and wasted. He, he's not commanded to, you know, uh, to feel that uh, uh, they're valueless, which would be chus, lo sochus. He's not told that. He's told that you can have rachamim, you can feel pity, you can feel chus, you can feel that, uh, you know, value is being lost here. You've been told to wipe out uh, human beings. You've been told to wipe out animals, working animals, producing animals. Obviously, there's, there's going to be a value that's going to be lost. And also, automatically, as a human being, um, you're going to feel some type of rachamit. So he's not commanded not to do that. What he's commanded not to have is chemla. To think to yourself, if I think about this intellectually, what I've been commanded here to do is intrinsically wrong. That's what he's been commanded to do. He, he's not allowed, he's been told not to rationalize this, intellectually as an action that is intrinsically wrong so two verses later we are told by shol ad iramolek shol came to the city of amolek who's preparing to go into battle by yoreb banachal and he fought in the valley uh, now when it, when the posuk says uh, that he fought in the valley there was no fight in the valley this was shol the fight in the valley was going on inside Shaul's head. This was Shaul's intellect, his conscience, telling him that this commandment from God to annihilate everyone and everything um, uh, was very difficult to him. By Yoreb, he struggled with it. He struggled with his intellect. He struggled with his conscience. He had the feeling that he'd been told to kill women and children, and he felt this, this would be suffering and they don't, that they don't really deserve. Intellectually, it was troubling. What have they done? What have babes in arms done? Intellectually, it's, it's, it's gross. It's ridiculous. Furthermore, he thought, with the fact that none of these current Amalekites were there 400 years ago, 
let's be honest. When, when that story, when the Torah says, you know, the Torah is reminding you about the Amalekites, what they did when you left Egypt. They attacked you from the rear. They uh, attacked the weakest part of the uh, Jewish people. But that was then. That was 400 years ago. So Shoals, Vayorah, Banachal, his intellect was telling him, these aren't the same people. People change. These aren't the same people. These aren't the same Amalekites that attacked the Jews 400 years ago. They're all dead. So how can it be right? We're annihilating the the now. How can that be right? And that's why God had to command him. You're not allowed to. So the Gemara says, uh, deals with this. This the Gemara Newman, that cap base. Omar Abmonik. The, the Gemara says, Shaul struggled with God concerning the matter of the valley. Vayorev Banachal says, says the Gemara at the time when God said to Shaul, you must kill them all. Shaul counted and said to God, or he said to the Novi, or he said to God, it's not clear what the Gemara, where the Gemara is going with this, but listen to what his argument was, his intellectual argument. He says, when we look at the Torah, we see such concern for life that even when one life is taken and the person's body is found and the murderer is unknown, the Torah requires the bringing of an Eglarufa, the, the heifer whose neck is broken, uh, to a barren valley, to a nachal, to a barren valley, um, in an, an atonement ritual known as the Eglarufa, which is described in Devorim in chapter 6. And essentially what happens is all the elders of the closest city uh, to where the body was found have to declare that they are not responsible for the death of this victim, this person. And Shaul's argument was, listen, his intellectual argument is this. If the Torah is so concerned with the death of one unknown individual, all the more so, um, like if the Torah is so concerned like inter, inter, it's an intellectual argument. Like the Torah is making an intellectual point here. That one life is, is as the Gemara says, one life can change the universe. All the more so must you have chemla, value, not value, it's the wrong word, chemla. Must you take, must you have consideration intellectually and, and not take all these Amalekite lives? And says the Gemara, this was the intellectual struggle playing out in Shaul's mind by Yorav Banachal. And um, he couldn't come to terms with it. Intellectually, he couldn't come to terms with it. He wasn't commanded not to have Rachamin. He wasn't commanded not to have Chuz. He, he understood that value was being lost and he, he had Chuz. He understood that uh, uh, Rachamin was allowed here, right? He's going to see people suffering. He's going to feel bad about it. What he couldn't come to terms with was the Sachma, was the Chemla, that he wasn't allowed, he couldn't rationalize that this was intellectually correct based on the Torah. And we see from this story where Shaul is told below Sachma, that Chemla relates to the feeling of pity that is essentially an intellectual argument. That's one uh, aspect of Chemla. Another example 
which might uh, strengthen th- this idea. And again, we'll return to uh, the message of Yechezkel when we fully understand what this word means. Similarly, in Yoel, the book of Yoel, um, something that will clarify what God is saying here in Yechezkel a bit more clearly. There's a posse in Yoel in chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Vayakane Hashem la'artso vayachamol al amo. God was zealous for his land and had chemla on his people. Now, vayachamol al amo. God had chemla on his people. The language of chemla in Yoel is not an expression of regular pity. But God acting with chemla means that God doesn't believe the Jews who are suffering at the time of Yoel should be subject to that suffering. When the Jews at at this point in the book of Yoel, in the second chapter of Yoel, did teshuva, we we know that they got a kapara, an atonement. You don't need to read the book of Yoel, just take my word for it. There's a point in the second chapter where the Jewish people did uh, some type of teshuva, and they got a kapara from it, meaning that their sins were removed from the record books. And as such, after the teshuva, after the kapara, the sins of the people have been totally erased from history. So the suffering that the Jews were suffering at that particular moment in time is now totally unwarranted intellectually. Hence the language of God in that verse, or the language of Yoel, by Yachamol al-Amo, so to speak, God, so to speak, has got chemla, intellectually. It's an intellectual argument that the suffering of the Jewish people is totally unwarranted at this point. So if we understand Chemla, uh, 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 we understand the three, the three words, that, uh, we'll re- review them in a second. We don't, we've, we've dealt with the word Rachamim, we've dealt with the word Chus, now we've had a look at the word Chemla. Now we can understand what God is saying in the second part of this verse in, in Yechezko. In the second part of this verse, he's saying, Velo echmo, I will not have chemla on these Jews. Because I will I won't have chemla. Why? And what will be my action? I will place, I'll return their ways upon them, and their abominations will be returned upon them. And they will know that I am God. Meaning this. Had you Jews done some type of teshuva, I, God, could have made the logical, intellectual decision to have some type of chemla on you. Based on the fact that you did teshuva. Not on the fact that you got any value. Because uh, in terms of chus, in terms of value, you got no value at the moment. You're not the oral agoyim you were supposed to be. But as an intellectual decision, that you've done teshuva, you've done something about your current state of affairs, then on that basis, God says, then it's warranted intellectually from the Torah to have chemlor upon you. But here in Yechezkel, there has been no attempt at teshuva by the residents of Yehudu and Yushalayim. So apart from the fact that God's not got any chus on the Jews, uh, as we explained above, right? We explained that God having no chus means uh, chus is an expression of value, added value. The, the Jews are providing no added value at the moment. 
They're supposed to be or lagoyim, and they're no longer doing that job. So in terms of value, which is the definition of what chus is, you don't want to see something damaged or somebody injured or somebody died because they got added value. That's chus. So in respect to chus, we understand God uh, is not having any chus on these people. They, they're providing no value. Uh, in fact, they're doing just the opposite. Um, uh, so that their added value to God's project is, is, is diminished almost to zero. And on top of that, God says, intellectually, God says, I can't even make the argument that you should be shielded from further suffering, as you haven't demonstrated that Chenler is warranted, because you've made no attempt to do Teshuvah. So intellectually, uh, both from the perspective of value, the value you provide to the project, and also from an intellectual perspective, that you've done something about it to warrant some type of chemla, that doesn't exist either. So, right. So I, I can't I can't bring myself, says God, to have chus on the basis that your value is almost zero in respect of the God of my project. And in respect of chemla, I can't bring myself to have any chemla on you because chemla is something that's an intellectual argument based on the actions, based on your actions. What have you done? What have you done? What have you done to, to remedy a situation that I should have chemla, that I should argue to myself intellectually, yes, there's something about that, that there's a change. And therefore we can make the argument that, that they should be treated slightly better. So that is the meaning of the first two words, the first two expressions, chus and chemla. But the, the interesting thing here, God doesn't even mention the idea of rachamim, mercy, as an option in this verse. God doesn't even bring himself to say, I'm not going to have any rachamim on you. Yeah, he tells them he's not going to have any chus because their value is diminished. The value to the project's diminished and he's not going to have any chemla because uh, they've made, made no attempt, attempt to rectify the situation, which could be deemed to be a catalyst for some type of chemla, some type of intellectual uh, empathy or sympathy or action on their behalf. But he doesn't mention rachamim. And the reason that rachamim is not mentioned is obvious. Rachamim, as we mentioned before, means that you feel bad for someone and don't want to see them suffer or go through tough times, even if they deserve it. So you feel a need to help them. But Rachamim always has limits. Let me just give you a finish off with this analogy. Yeah, or maybe not. Maybe we'll finish this off next week. Um, just give me a second. Yeah, we'll, we'll deal with it. Well, we, uh, this is a... a, a a, a difficult, uh, not difficult, but it's uh, an intense piece to try and understand why God doesn't mention Rachamim in this verse. And as you'll see uh, from my uh, explanation, well, not my explanation, the explanation that uh, I learned and I'm passing over to you, you'll see that uh, Rachamim is a non-starter here, uh, that God should have Rachamim for the Jewish people at this moment in time, this moment in history just before the destruction of the first base of Migdosh, is absolutely not warranted at all. Um, and I think, I think that's a good place to stop. Um, 
because we got to a we really got to a point where we oh there's a, a question here question Chen, if no verse in the Torah is more important than any other why is it a biblical command to hear parasha Zohar and no other possible oh uh, it's a great question it's a great it's a great question um uh, the, the clue is in the answer, uh, in the, in the parasha. It's a command from the Torah to remember it. <laughs> and therefore it's a biblical command to remember it from the word, first word of the, uh, the parasha, Zohar. Um, so that's basically telling you this piece, this piece of the Torah is a biblical, uh, requirement to listen to it, to remember. Um, we're going to stop there. Um, um, I hope that doesn't bother too many people. You, uh, next week, the nine days will be finished, but we'll still be, uh, in terms of uh, Yechezka, we'll still be in the middle of the nine days. Um, but um, um, again, w- we, we have to explain, just to, to end off with the, the question. Uh, I, hope I've ex- I hope you understand, you've, you've been able to understand, I hope I've explained it correct. Uh, no, I know I've explained it correctly. I hope I've explained it in a sufficient, uh, with sufficient clarity uh, what God is saying here. About low uh, sochos below below yachmal, God's not going to have any chus, and He's not going to have any chemla on the Jewish people. The only question that's left is why He's left out the word uh, rachamim. That He's not going to have any mercy, and as we're going to see, uh, rachamim is not even a starter here, not even a starter for ten, uh, as they used to say on University Challenge. Uh, if anybody's got any questions, now's the time. Um, if not, we can call a uh halt to proceedings early really for me only four minutes over time um but i think we stopped at a good point and um we'll we'll discover next week please god exactly why god's not even entertaining the idea of rachamim at the time of the destruction of the first base Middash. so any questions no okay then guys and gals very nice to uh spend time with you have a great week. Well, you shouldn't have to say that. It's a nine days. Don't have a great week. Um, have a moderate week. Um, and I wish you a, uh, everyone says a meaningful fast, but really, you know, that's, I think it's a contradiction in terms because uh, fast days, all you're thinking about is the fact that you're fasting. Um, so have a meaningful nine days, I think is more important. Um, and uh uh, we'll see you in health and happiness, please, God, next Monday, same time, same place, same channel. Um, and call to, to everybody. Have a, have a uh, very nice to spend time with you. And very nice to have you back. Nat Gordon, welcome. I'm back from Bonnie, Scotland. And Larry Lowenthal as well. Wonderful to see you. And uh, have a great week. Well, don't have a great week again. Call to, yeah, to everybody. Bye-bye. 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 Bye. 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 Bye.